The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin and I will be your host. This time around, I am joined by James Fox, senior writer over at Future Sox. It's a special guest today, 670 The Score's Matt Spiegel, jumping on our podcast to have a conversation about the White Sox as well as some Major League Baseball. We're going to incorporate that a lot today, Spiegs, because there's some news related to the draft, and Rob Manfred's been in a, a little bit of hot water throughout the offseason, and you know, with the latest developments, I don't think it's going to get any better from the outside looking in. But before we get into the meat of the conversation today, I, I want to catch up with you because you were in Arizona throughout the week prior that this whole coronavirus pandemic took over really the sports world and, of course, the entire population as we know it. <laughs> um, so, so I wanted to I wanted to get your take on being there that week, being live, and then you were on the air while some of this stuff started developing, and uh, I just wanted to get your take on how you were able to deal with that and manage that as as a radio host. I mean, this is something that we have never seen before. Yeah, this is um, these are bizarre times, thoroughly unprecedented, and we're all kind of living day to day and, and moment to moment with this. I I'd like to feel like we're towards the bottom of what we'll have to deal with as an American society, but um, that might not be true. Um, in, in, in terms of the, the baseball aspect of it, it just feels like such a crime to be talking to you guys here on what would be opening day. And I can say that without worry of when you're going to release the podcast, that things will be dated. There won't be any games we will miss in terms of things being dated. Um, but it, it's, it's just, it, it, it's so, it's so wrong. My, my friend Barry Rosner always used to say that sports matter because they don't matter. And it's, it's lovely to have something in our lives that we can get angry about, get passionate about, find joy in. Um, and as baseball is a companion sport and is our companion for six months, seven, if you care about the spring, eight if you're knee deep in the postseason no matter who's playing um it's just it's a big big void to be taken from us so yeah you know baseball was kind of the last one 
to really have to admit, all right, even though we're played outside and we're all in the hot weather out here, we can't pretend that we're special and we're not special. So, and baseball is the most problematic sport in terms of resumption because of pitchers and because of how careful you have to be with pitchers and how smartly in control pitchers are of their own arms and their own timetables and everything like that. So it's it's scary to think about what might happen in terms of a full skip of the baseball season. I hope to God it does not come to that. And I certainly have ideas and I'm open to all sorts of ideas about how to play. And I hope they will eventually play. But it's um, it's been very, very weird to have baseball stripped away from us, that's for sure. You mentioned that companion, baseball is your companion. I think that just encapsulates everything for me in a personal standpoint. It's always been there. And now suddenly it's taken away from us. And you mentioned today, as we record this, is opening day. And I woke up this morning feeling a little extra sad, right? And this is the first time since 94, 95, really, that baseball's been at a standstill and of course back then it was a little different obviously circumstances Um, but you know on the score you and Bruce Levine a couple of weeks back talked to Jim Riggleman and you guys had a really interesting conversation about just that topic what were some of the takeaways when you were talking to Riggleman about this extended period of no baseball well, I, I think that that Riggs had lived through in 95 which um, was his you know, as he was managing the Cubs and trying to get everybody ready, just, just you know, the, the ability to to think on the fly and quickly change on the fly and deal with the new reality and just kind of, uh, you know, personally to try and relate to guys and and be and be available to guys as they as they get going and have those uh, have the relationship take precedence as everybody gets ready on their own speed. That's that's the bulk of of what I uh, I remember in terms of the personal feeling of the conversation. He had he had also the other factor of all the replacement players who were in there and he was getting all those guys up and ready to go knowing full well that they were going to be stigmatized then and as they have been forever since. But but then when, you know, they came to an agreement March 28th um april 2nd the big league players came back they had three weeks of a tightened up spring and off they went playing i believe it was 144 games so it's it's certainly the best model for baseball adjusting to this kind of thing and that's probably what they'll have to follow whether it's 81 games or 100 games or 50 so speaks there was a report today from kylie mcdaniel of espn um, that Major League Baseball is finalizing their plans to, you know, alter the draft this year. So, I mean, the current plan, it seems to be, is they're going to go 10 rounds and they're going to push it back to July. But the biggest part of this thing is the owners getting their way, saving money on draft bonuses. They're going to defer 90% of the payment to the next two years for these kids. So I guess just what are your thoughts on you know, Major League Baseball doing this, the owners getting their way, and then whether it's necessary to shorten it this much. It's not. Um, this is a monetary choice. This is self-preservation and, and opportunism from billionaires. And it feels ugly. It feels very ugly. Um, the, the truth is that any of us are lucky to make a living in and around baseball. And those kids are fortunate to be able to play a game for a living and they're fortunate to be drafted. And that eagerness will be used to their disadvantage. And it is being done so now 
and not just by the billionaires, but by the millionaires who are the players as well. The Players Association is allowing the owners to save some money here by shortening the draft, by deferring the bonuses, by lowering the maximum signing bonus for the undrafted to only 10000 So, But this is part of much bigger discussions going on between MLB and the Players Association. So the young and the hungry get shafted. And uh, and and such is such is society. Um, I, I I guess it's mitigated only by the the good fortune of uh, of the young players who are you know going to end up with a life in baseball, assuming everything gets back to to normal. But but they're the ones who are who are getting shafted, while the the big league players association is going to get a few things that that they would ordinarily not get at a moment like this, especially with a new collective bargaining agreement uh, upon us. The players wouldn't have leverage, but they actually have some leverage right now. And when they give up things like this, it adds to their leverage for the big items that they're discussing, like service time and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely does. So, I mean, the big league players are, you know, selling their future constituents up the river a little bit with this, but it, I think it goes a little bit deeper. Like these MLB owners, they hate spending on the draft in general. We talked a lot to scouts like over the last 10 days when some of this information started leaking out and, you know, some of them were like, yeah, not a surprise. Like owners don't really understand, you know, in some cases like the benefits that they get from, you know, spending 10 million on a draft when you get a hundred million in surplus value. I want your thoughts too on, I, I think they're going to use this, to get rid of minor league affiliates and change the way they do things. Like once they go to 10 rounds, they could very easily make the argument that, you know, it should be 20 to 25 from now on pay less money, get rid of minor league affiliates and, and go that way just because, you know, that would benefit the owners in the long run. And I think that's what we're getting to. Well, and they've been trying to do that. They've been, you know, that, that, that issue is up and in, you know, Congress getting involved and saying, Hey, you can't just unilaterally get rid of these minor league affiliates, but they absolutely want to do it. And and I think they will do it. It's 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 myopic, um, but it really dovetails with with society getting rid of middle management all over the place, minimizing the workforce. And what what you've hit on is is the opportunistic moment here in the viral crisis, where you know things that are changed. A lot of companies are going to be able to say, "Oh yeah, well this worked out just fine, didn't it? All right, well let, let's do that." And you know, we'll all have to be on guard. Um, for things like that. It, it, it's incredibly foolish for owners to not realize the value in the young and cheap labor when that's what allows you to spend $150 million on a free agent pitcher and hope you get three good years out of it is that the best organizations have that young, cheap labor upcoming, which they can use and keep the payroll down or package in trade. I mean, we all know this. We've seen this forever. And, and maybe they think that they could still come up with those few players without the excess that is all the bodies in the minor leagues, all the rounds in the draft where you take flyers on guys and some of them don't work. I mean, I'm sure they think that just, you know, 10, 15, 20 rounds, you'll find the good players. Well, that's proven not to be true. I mean, do we need to compile a list of everybody drafted round 21 or below that went on in the big leagues and was was an excellent prospect or was a great player or it was an all-star or a piece of a championship team, but it's, um, it, it's, it's myopic from billionaires. So I suppose it shouldn't surprise us. Spiegel, you, you were talking about, of course, the money invested in these players and the fact that it goes so deep, this, this draft. And I can't help, but just personally as a former player myself, no, and, and 
not taken away from myself, but I was nowhere near like any sort of resemblance of a prospect or scouted in any way. But I feel for these players who want to make this their living. And they're, of course, getting hit with this pretty hard. And it all relates back to the guy that the owners are paying, right? And Rob Manford, the guy in charge here. So and there, there's so much to say about Rob Manford's one offseason. I mean, we can even go back to his entire tenure so far as Major League Commissioner. But I don't want to do that now. Now I, I want to focus on his effort to combat all of these issues, including the Red Sox scandal that he said his investigation is complete, as well as the Houston Astros and minor league play, and of course the draft suddenly in play. Not only that, he's got the coronavirus pandemic dealing with. What What does Rob Madford need to do better? Because I wanted to ask you this. You were talking last week on Hit and Run and referenced Adam Silver uh, and his job that he did with the NBA. I was in agreement with you. I think Adam Silver handled that about as good as, as anyone could have done. What are your thoughts there? Well, I, I, I think I think Adam Silver is is progressive ethically and um, morally in a way that his league is comfortable with. Um, and he listens to his players and he's connected to his players in a way that very few commissioners are, you know, probably none. I mean, Roger Goodell likes to portray the kind of closeness when he gives big bear hugs to every first round draft pick with the NFL. Um, but Adam Silver has genuinely has relationships with these guys and listens to these guys. Um, Manfred is an owner's pawn and everybody knows it. And he's an extension of Bud Selig, who was an owner's pawn. And it, it goes back to Bart Giamatti and and his untimely death and then Faye Vincent being forced out. And then the, the, the concept of in the best interest of baseball is, is really, is really a dead one. And, and every once in a while, Manfred will have a moment where he's talking about pace of play or even, even today when he's talking about trying to be open with the possibilities of what baseball could be and that we'll be back. Baseball will be back. And he tries to speak with empathy. It's just, you know, it, he's, he's a, He's a snake, and he's clearly a a lawyer and a fiscally driven, legalese beholden owner puppet snake. It's just, and it's so obvious, and it's it's sad. Um, so it, look, I, I I would I would like to see him more connected to fans, more connected to players, but I don't know if he has it in him, and I don't know if that job if that job has capacity for that anymore, because you are being told what to do by the Reinsdorfs of the world um, and, and the Ricketts of the world. So I, I find him disappointing. I find the position and the office incredibly disappointing as I have for a long time. So speaks obviously one of the things we do here, we cover the White Sox minor leagues exclusively, but the minor leagues in general and the White Sox, you know, have done a better job lately, but even more so this offseason with some of the organizational changes they've made. Something that you said on the radio um, recently really piqued my interest. So can you share with our readers just when you were in Glendale, I believe you were, you know, you went on a golf cart with Roger Bossard and, yeah. you know, he, he, he showed you, you know, the White Sox technology room or whatever it was. And you saw Jake Berger back there. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit further? Yeah, it was a great moment because White Sox PR was um, was very welcoming and they um, were, were trying to be nice to us. And it's been at times a contentious relationship with the radio station, especially since they left and the Cubs came. And, and people know that. 
Um, but they were warm and welcoming, but they obviously have their limits. You know, at, at Sloan Park in Mesa, um, I had a tour of that place before it opened from Theo. Um, and I've walked around that building before, and you know, and, and we're very connected. In terms of Camelback, um, it'd been a long time since I'd been back into the bowels behind the office there, like where some of the real work gets done. And so as we were leaving, having had a successful day in the locker room and everything worked out okay, um, we saw Roger Bossard. And Roger knows Dan McNeil for a long, long time and he remembers me from fun interviews. And Roger kind of owns the place, you know? It's, it's like it, Roger, Roger's been in charge a long time. He's the son of a son of a son of a greenskeeper. It's fourth generation. Um, and and he's, he's royalty there. So And Roger was excited to show us what the organization is doing. So said, come with me guys. And the walk that we took ended up going through a couple of fields where guys were working, going around the corner. We got some dirty looks from a few people who were like, who are these guys? What the hell are they doing here? And then walked through and then walked right into this, um, this giant kind of structure that held the cage. And I had talked to somebody who had just helped set up all the all the all the computer stuff, um, and it told me a little bit about it. But then there it was, and it's the kind of stuff that I think is standard now in just about every organization. It's for a long time, certain organizations were ahead of the others analytically and informationally, and then some organizations were ahead of others um, techn technology wise, and in terms of how much they're willing to invest in machinery and certain edgertronic cameras and all that. And then Driveline and, and Modus and all these other companies started doing things that some organizations hadn't thought of. So they got ahead. And now you've seen uh, you know, teams pull from these organizations, pull from Driveline, pull from Modus. And, and, and you've written about this, James. Like they, They've now set it up where they have very smart people who are empowered, and they've spent their $900,000 to $1 million on the force plate technology. And, I, and as we walked in, I saw the pitching stuff that nobody was using, but I saw a guy who I later realized was Jake Berger standing in his stance, slowly shifting his weight back and forth as they tested this force plate. And there's one on each side of home plate as they tested it. And one guy was setting up the monitor to um, to read from the computer that they were setting up. And they're just setting it all up. And Jake was just kind of shifting weight back and forth and then taking some swings. And guys kind of nodded to us and looked askance. And we were not supposed to be there. And I, I mean, I don't know. You guys can tell me how many other people have gotten this kind of tour. I took a few pictures. I didn't tweet them out of respect, um, but it was it was just great to see. And then we asked Roger, and even Roger, whose whose domain is grass and dirt, right, was like, "Oh yeah, that's the Edutronic right there, and um, that's the Rapsodo over there, and all these cameras." And he's like telling us about it, and the pride in this. What is he? Sixty five, sixty eight. This guy. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah. The pride in him that his organization, his mom and pop organization, steeped on loyalty and family that he is proud to have been a part of, is doing what it needs to do to modernize and update. His palpable pride was really infectious and, and, and deserved. I mean, good for him. Good for them. I know it took a long time. It took so many years of, of mediocrity and just a terrible Robin Ventura run and 
and and and some some ugly ugly attendance years but they've got it they figured it out and they're they're chasing the very best that they can possibly be from a personnel standpoint um, and from a technology standpoint and spending money on that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it's not an organization that was willing to spend that kind of money in previous years, but now they are. So good for them. And it was kind of nice to have the homespun tour from Roger, a guy who shouldn't understand all that stuff, but knows that the organization should have it and is proud to see it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's a great story. And I think, you know, like the fact that it's Roger Bossard doing it, like maybe speaks to the bigger problem a little bit. And we've, we've discussed this, you and I, like, why are they so secretive about this? It's like awesome that they've, we've written about it extensively. People yeah. didn't really believe us. And then you also have the people that are like, oh, other teams have been doing it for five years. Okay. Yeah. Fair. But at least they've gotten here. And Chris Getz is like doing some of these, you know, making some of these modifications and having a modern player development system. But it's like, God, they're just they're so secretive about all this stuff. And like you're obviously, you know, you're a radio host there. But I mean, like you have a platform. Others have a platform like get this stuff out there so people can talk about it. And they just refuse to. Yeah, well, you know, consider that the moment I saw was them still setting it up. So it was, right. it's fairly early for them. I don't think they have the confidence um, in all of it. I think they're more confident about the pitching stuff. Um, so maybe if we had seen that happening, uh, but, but either way, it, it, your, your point is valid. Um, there is, there is an insecurity and a self-consciousness in the organization that goes top to bottom. And I wish it didn't exist but it is, it reinforces itself. Um, there were times, guys, where I had to remind colleagues of mine who were frustrated with our experience there that day. I had to remind them, hey, this is them trying to be nice. This is them trying to be welcoming and fill us in. This is them doing that. It's still, there's still like ways that they go about things and just kind of an air and a, and a distance that is a little off-putting and, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. Um, but it, but it is so, but, but they're, they're, they're in the process of getting past that and, and getting over that. And, um, and I think winning, winning will help an awful lot. But I think they've looked at media as the enemy for a long, long time, not realizing that media is going to exist and do its thing no matter what they do. And, and, and all we are is, is a conduit to create some fan interest and to create fan attitudes. And if you treat us, and I mean you guys and me and all of us, if you treat all of us with that, that distance and that insecurity, that ends up transcending to become part of the opinion of, of fan base and for haters of the team, doesn't it? It ends, up, it ends up being an unnecessary element in the stew that is the relationship between fans, media, and, uh, and organization. I think that's really important, the way you put that, because, you know, we're in that boat. We don't, we're not directly attached to the White Sox. We're, of course, independent, but we serve the White Sox in the fact that we're bringing so much interest to the organization because we are interested as baseball fans. That's all it's about. And a lot of the time, the organization is really apt about keeping everything in house. And I understand that. And when it comes to leaking sensitive information, I totally get that. But to shut down some sort of, you know, some some angles or what have you, influential blogs, it, it's, it is off-putting. That, that is true. 
But it also goes back to what you were talking about, and this is on a positive light, and it's good that we're finally getting away from the ominous tone, the way that this podcast started. I'm really enjoying the way this conversation is taking us. But related to the organizational philosophy and developing players at this point in this era, the White Sox are adapting. And and it's great to see, especially considering the White Sox really committed to a rebuild in 2016, we could call it, after that season kind of failed. Now we're starting to see the fruits of the labor and things are starting to come together. And this is one of those things you mentioned, all of that technology plays a part and incorporating the analytics, understanding what is valuable to incorporate with certain guys to get them to that next level. So my question to you is, Dating back to 16, and you can go even further back when Rick Hahn officially took over as general manager, what was that, 2012, 2013? Mm-hmm. What about your experience following the club has changed from then till now? My experience following the club? Well, um, I, I mean, as they've shown the willingness to evolve and a desire to get smarter, um, it, it's been wonderful for, for me as a baseball guy and as a baseball media guy. And, and, and in some of the same ways that it was when, when Theo got to, uh, to Wrigley and they started modernizing things and they did simple things, which, you know, I think the White Sox have now done as well, like making sure that the camera angles that they use to video, to record video of, of their games at every affiliate and in Arizona are all the same. So when they're watching stuff, they can just scout visually and say, oh, yeah, that's all the same. And now there's data hooked up to all those so they can measure their own internal, you know, field FX, their own internal stat cast kind of stuff and, and, and measure it. Um, th- those kind of things, it, 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 it has been a wonderful opportunity. I'd say since 2012 in this town, and I think t- since 2016 for the White Sox, but really to have one organization after the other modernize and upgrade has been an incredible learning opportunity for all of us. And, and it continues, it continues right now. It's one of my, my favorite things about spring training was listening to Don Cooper talk about rap Soto and listening, listening to Coop finally understand as he has over the past year, that numbers and data and tech does not need to be feared. And it's like any of our grandfathers learning to use the microwave. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, all this does is make my job easier. I got it. Oh, like, I I think it was spin axis that he realized was just the data version of getting on top of the baseball, something he's been trying to communicate to people for decades, you know, and, and that's why I've used the term and I think I invented it, quantifiable scouting at its best. Some of this stuff is just that. So scouts can speak to each other in, in a way that is measured. And then players can look at it and, and, and know it. And, and teams can swap information and have it be unified. That, that's all it really is. So to have both organizations, and I think the White Sox even more palpably because of some of the people involved, your Don Coopers, your Roger Bossards, as we've been talking about, all those kind of guys, like realize that, that information doesn't have to be feared. And, and it doesn't, and just because you don't get it at first doesn't mean that anybody's going to think you're stupid. Sometimes it takes a little while to wrap your head around it. Okay, let's have good conversations about wrapping your head around it. If Lucas Giolito or Dylan Cease knows it better, Coop, listen to them. And I think he's showing a willingness to, which I admire, frankly. So it's been a great experience covering. Yeah, looking back at this last decade, I mean, 
talking about the Cubs and the way that they went about their business in rebuilding the franchise, getting them that World Series title in 2016. It was all about developing within, from the ground up. And it was really a fascinating thing to watch and see it transpire into success. Now, we're in the same sort of level with the White Sox. They, they committed to the rebuild. They're betting on guys that they acquired via trade as well as drafted. They've developed within their system. And unfortunately, opening day isn't today, but whenever that is, we expect the White Sox in 2020 to compete. And they gave themselves a chance to compete because they were smart with their resources. They were able to invest in free agency when they were ready to invest. And some of these guys that they brought in, now the formula, and, and it's there. We're seeing the equation result into what we believe is a winning ball club. Now, when I, when I reference all of that, I, I want to ask you your consumption of minor league baseball just generally. Now, prior to you know the Cubs and the White Sox getting to this level, what was your consumption of minor league baseball? And since then, has it influenced yourself, like paying attention more so now that, hey, these are the guys that are going to be the future. Let's... Uh, Let's kind of take another look at these uh, at this player. Yeah, you know, well, I, I was always I, w- I was always into it. Like I have I have the Baseball America Prospect Handbook for every year going back to I think 1997. Um, and it's funny it, every, when I when I went to Sporting News Radio, I took those with me and set them up in my office. When I went anywhere, let me in pre-internet, you know, when I came to this, came to the 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 score or, or whatever, um, or pre and the proliferation of, of scouting information, I would bring those books with me. Everybody like, what the hell are you doing? Well, so when Juan Cruz comes up to pitch for the the Cubs, I can read that and see, oh yeah, scouts say he's kind of like Pedro Martinez because of what he throws and his body build and stuff like that. And I can talk about that before he debuts. And people are like, oh, my God, Spiegel knows this stuff. So, I mean, I've always been into it on that level. Um, but but then just understanding how it operates and why some guys go to high A and why some guys go to extended spring training and why a certain manager or hitting coach who happens to be at double A is more advantageous than triple A, why you know, certain pitching profiles exist in AAA and aren't really that worthwhile when you're measuring hitters, especially if it's the Pacific Coast League and it's, you know, where, where the ball flies, that, I mean, that, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I've always been into it. It has certainly expanded. And it also expanded at the time when it started really to become currency. And it, it, it became currency. Now you talked about an organization in terms of, okay, great. So they're winning on the big league level, but are they healthy? Like, are they going to be anything in two years? Are they going to be anything in three years? Should I care? You know, um, do they understand what what the big picture is? So, yeah, it's, it's been fascinating. And, and, and I'll be interested to see where the White Sox are in two more years, in three more years, when they are at a spot, where, say, where the Cubs are now, where their young positional players have either panned out beautifully or not, and they're existing with the decision they made to pay them, unlike the Cubs did. And the Cubs are where they are, having to decide which ones they trade, which ones they can possibly keep, who they've, who has developed into being outpriced, and all that kind of stuff. And also, where the Cubs are right now is that their minor leagues have dried up completely because they started failing in the draft. They started failing in development. So where will the White Sox be? It's um, it was aggressive to move Nick Hostetler away from what he was doing, but I think as you look at the people that he acquired or that they acquired from the 2016 draft. And he was a very loud voice in Rick Hahn's ear because they were just getting their scouting up to speed. So it was like, all right, well, who do we like? He, he liked Blake Rutherford, right? He liked all these different guys from that draft that, that they had acquired. And, and 
And you, when you see him move to a different spot, it's smart and aggressive. And I think the Cubs were late to do that with Jason McLeod, and the results show that. So it's um, it, it long answer, but I'm I'm deeply fascinated. And you know, there's there's a limited amount of what you can keep up with, but but knowing how it works and why it works for some and why it doesn't work for others is incredibly instructive in terms of dissecting what happens on the big league level. Yeah, so obviously Luis Robert was probably going to be the starting center fielder in Chicago, um, you know, and that's who everybody's talking about the most. But are there any other, you know, of the young prospects that are in Sox camp that you're particularly impressed with? And obviously you were only there for one day, but I guess did seeing anybody in person, not that it would, you know, make you change anything, but just, I guess, who were you impressed with, you know, when you were there and then in general? Uh, Mercedes. I mean, Mercedes because of just the constancy of how hard he hits it and also his personality. I mean, I've talked about this, but even just that one day in the locker room, that that place was just crackling. I mean, just buzzing, filled with players, everybody messing with each other, walking around. And Mercedes um, is a very passionate, um, interesting, you know, kind of electric dude. And you could see it, you can see it on the field. Right. And I saw it off the field. So disappointed to see the decision to send him down. I thought he actually fit very nicely. Is that possible? 26th man. And we'll see who the hell knows what's going to happen. But, but that was a guy who really appealed to me and, and Nicky Delmonico, man, Delmonico, he's, I mean, he's been here since 2015, but after the shoulder surgery, and he got released. Yeah, he took a good hard look at himself. And and when they signed him back in December, it was with kind of a new mindset. And he he changed his swing. And he looked like a very useful player because the bat was always what kept you from thinking he was going to be useful. But he looked awfully useful when I saw him um, in person and uh, and and on tape. Um, this spring. So I'd say that, that those two guys hopped out, hopped out. I know you don't think of Delmonico as one of the young prospects, but you know what I mean? Sometimes guys, sometimes guys find something at 26 or at 27, which he is. And, and, and they're not done. They're just not done yet. And he might not be done. Yeah. Delmonico is a great story. I, yeah, I think he was actually going to open the season as a 26 man too. And who knows now, now we might have a 27th or 28th man if they ever get playing. So that, you know, pertaining to that is my next question for you. Obviously we have no idea when they're going to get started. They've said they want to play as many games as possible. Play hypothetical here. If it happens, if it's like a quick sprint, 80, you know, 80, 81 game season, or even a hundred, do you think it benefits a team like the White Sox at all? And then, you know, you could have, they could have uh, Carlos Rodon back. They could have Michael Kopech in the rotation. They could be, you know, one of these teams where you're throwing just a bunch of different pitchers, three to four innings at a time, and they're yeah. all young. You know, does does that benefit a team like them? Yes, I, I think so, theoretically. I think there's a few different things that could possibly benefit the White Sox. That's one, and I think you elucidated it well, and we'll see how long games are, how many doubleheaders there will be, how how much guys are ramped up, ready to go. But you could see a lot of three- to four-inning stints from usual starters, at least at the start. Um, I also think that that you know a young and excitable and hungry team who feels great about themselves – is going to get ready for the season with a little more um, vigor and and natural um, passion than some others. We're going to have to fight through some things and might be wondering about themselves. So I think the White Sox are, are one of those, the former rather than the latter. 
And then just, you know, and don't they fit the profile of a kind of team that gets off to a hot start and then might fade as the grind of 161 takes effect and the true cream rises to the top? Maybe they can, maybe they're that team that can get off to a superbly hot start and not have the season be long enough <laughs> to, for the grind yeah. to, to ever really kick in and for them to come back uh, to earth um, and, as it were. And I've, Look, I've tied this and I talked about it last week. I think it would be some lovely karmic retribution to have uh, a shortened season benefit the White Sox in contrast to the way that a killed season hurt them in 1994. I think there's some lovely symmetry there. But now you're hearing the hippie side of me um, in thinking about these kind of um, ethereal uh, sort of abstract concepts in baseball. Yeah, it's good good vibes, babe, right? Yes, that's what, that's yes, yeah, that's it. So just one uh, last guy for me that I wanted to touch on is Nick Madrigal. We've had a lot of guys on lately. We've had Keith Law, we had Kylie McDaniel, um, Jim Callis was on. And, you know, most most of these prospect writers, you know, they've come off of Nick Madrigal just a little bit, you know, just because the profile is different for a guy that's you know, in modern baseball, he doesn't hit the ball very hard, but he has like an incredible hit tool. He never strikes out, but that, you know, that's not always the best thing in the world. So Mm -hmm. did you, I mean, did you see him at all? Did you see how small he was? And then how do you think that profile plays, you know, soon? And then in like this era of baseball, I think, I think that profile, uh, will, will play. Um, he is awfully small. Um, the contact needs to be elite, and it wasn't this spring. The defense needs to be elite, and it wasn't this spring. Tiny little sample, dude getting his first taste, really. So I, I, I refuse to freak out about any of those things. Um, but I think the profile does play, especially if, if the ball does change or if baseball does some things in terms of lengthening fences or does some things to keep things to keep balls in play. But this kind of profile is always played. And I don't think, you know, look, Michael Young, remember Michael Young from the Texas Rangers? There was was a while there towards the end of a very, very good career when people started demeaning Michael Young and it became fashionable to point out his lack of value. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't valuable, which he was, especially in the elite part of his career, in the very good part of his career, when he was making a ton of contact and getting on a lot via the via the hit tool, if not so much the the walk tool, um, but yeah, absolutely, that kind of value, that that kind of profile plays, especially in a lineup potentially stocked with boppers with a lot of swing and miss. So I, I think it could make a lot of sense. And there's, I mean, anybody souring on him that's that's basing it on you know. 15, 20 games in the spring is, is foolish, in my opinion. Mr. Spiegel, outstanding stuff throughout this entire conversation, and we really enjoyed having you. Um, we'll, we'll let you go after this final thought uh, question, I guess. This is a personal one. Now, I want to take you back to last offseason and a huge topic of conversation related to Manny Machado and the White Sox pursuit of that player. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were hosting, I believe, that day when when we found out as fans that Machado was going to San Diego and you hopped on the score and you were taking calls. I was one of those callers. Cause I was, believe me, I was frustrated. I believe Herb Lawrence was the producer. I talked to him, got on. And I, I, you know, I talked to you and by the way, outstanding that night, I listened to the entire show and you were right on the money. And you know, I, I vented my feelings to you about how the white Sox didn't do enough to go get Manny Machado. All they had to do was give him the money that he wanted. 
So I'm thinking, right, and a lot of things, too, when, when we talk about that conversation. Oh, the White Sox could have had Machado last year and be in the same position they are today with their personnel. And I want to throw this at you because as I was able to stew on it, my perspective changed. I wanted Machado, and I would have been happy to have him again now. But knowing what transpired, knowing that Luis Roberts signed the extension, Moncada signed that extension, I'm thinking to myself, if Machado played third base and was on the White Sox, what would happen with the remainder of the roster? Would these contracts get signed? Would they be able to sign Moncada? His value is incredible at third base. But it's not as simple as, oh, we could have Machado and everybody else because it's like a domino effect. Things change. Players have to move positions. Maybe their values change. Maybe they decide to trade said players, right? Mm-hmm. What's your take What's your take on that perspective, just for fun? Well, um, for fun, um, as we think about it now, um, you wouldn't have bothered to go out and get Edwin Encarnacion. That's that's one that's one thing. You would have been expecting to have enough power in house. So those kind of moves would not have, would not have happened. Would they have gone out and gotten Grandal? Possibly not. Depends how good the offense was last year with Machado as a, as a constant in there. Could have gone a little lower end on the catcher, uh, possibly, or or stuck with McCann and and brought in somebody else to to platoon. Um, you're right that Mancada at second as opposed to third might not have performed as well, as comfortably, nor ended up with the same value. I think Mancada signs because of the snowball effect of seeing everybody else sign and realizing, yeah, man, let's just be here. It's nice to not have to worry about it. And I, I bet that would still be in play. But then you'd have the personality of Machado as a $300 million guy in the corner of that room. And that's your big dog. And that would very potentially change the vibe in that room. Um, right now, the big dog is Jose Abreu, and he is inclusive. He is welcoming. He is um, not – he's, he's a veteran with incredible work habits, you know. So that that's a really good big dog. So, no, I, I, I feel you. I think, I think it's fair to say now, hey, um, I'm kind of glad this didn't happen for a number of reasons. That's fine. It doesn't change – the facts at that time, and it does not change my opinion at that time and the passion of that night and that conversation, which um, I know upsets a lot of people uh, with the White Sox um, because they wanted him and they failed. You know, th- th- those were the facts at the time is that they wanted him, they wanted to go out and do it, and they failed because of their arbitrary line in the sand. And that was embarrassing. And, and, and that is absolutely true. But I think, it's, I think it's also fair to talk about here we are, you know, a, a year and a half later, um, and, and it's fine. It's fine that that didn't happen, right? And, uh, and, and, and I think both things can be true, as, as often is the case in, in, in sports and in opinionist line of work. Both things can be true. Hindsight remains undefeated. undefeated. Matt Spiegel, <laughs> thank you so much for jumping on the Future Sox podcast with us. Always, always entertaining. You're on the money. Um, whenever, whenever you're on the airwaves, we're so, we're so thankful that you were able to take the time today to talk to us. A pleasure, guys. Thanks, James. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Spiegs. For James Fox and Matt Spiegel, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify, as well as other podcasting outlets. Go to anchor.fm slash futuresox to browse our library. Leave us a review. Like our stuff. It really helps us out as a channel. One more time for Matt Spiegel. What a conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. We will talk to you all next time.